Jeremiah chapter 11. I trust you brought your Bibles with you, yes? Good. Good thinking. (laughs) When our kids go to school, we tell them to pay attention. We tell them to listen to the teacher. One of the reasons is not just that they get the knowledge that will be imparted to them. Uh, That's the primary reason. But we also want them to pass the tests that they're going to take in order to get their grades up. That's important to them for the next year and later on in life for placement in schools, placement in jobs, etc. And they're tested on the knowledge that they give, that they are given by the teacher. So we say, listen, pay attention. Be careful that you listen to everything that is said to you. Now, I heard... um, a take on the poem, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, done a little bit differently from a student's point of view. He said, Now I sit me down to study. I pray the Lord I won't go nutty. If I should fail to learn this junk, I pray the Lord I will not flunk. Now I lay me down to rest. I pray I'll pass tomorrow's test. But if I should die before I wake, That's one less test I have to take. (laughs) Amen. We don't like tests, but they do come. And it's important that we have listened well to important information, especially in life's tests. It's important that we have listened to the Lord and we understand His Word, His principles, so that we can pass the test and make it to our next level of growth. Now that was Judah's problem. They failed to pass the tests that they were allowed to go through by the Lord in their environment with the nation of Egypt, with the nation of Assyria and Babylon. They failed so many tests, they didn't listen to the Lord. And in this chapter, we see what happens to them. In chapter um, 11... You could sum it up by three words, deliverance, disobedience, disaster. Deliverance meaning God takes them back and reviews their history with them and says, remember how I delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. Remember from where you have come, what you used to be like, what it used to be like for you, how difficult it was, but I delivered you. However... You've been on a tailspin of disobedience over the years. Therefore, disaster is coming your way. Whenever you mix God's deliverance with your disobedience, that's a recipe for disaster. And that is the theme of this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 11. Um, Let me just give you a little bit of reference because God is going to refer to something called His covenant. And the covenant he is referring to here is the covenant made with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai when Moses went up and received the covenant of the law, principally the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Now it's important you remember that because when and if we make it all the way to chapter 31, God is going to mention a new covenant that he is making with the children of Israel, not like the one that they had gone through with Moses in the wilderness. This is a whole new deal, a whole new covenant. 
But after they were delivered from Egypt, God took the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai. There Moses went up and received the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. The first two were primary. They dealt with our relationship of worship and devotion to God. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall make no graven image of anything that is on earth or in heaven to worship it. Well, those two commandments had been broken over and over again by Israel and by Judah as the years went on. When Jeremiah was just a little kid, the king on the throne was a guy by the name of Manasseh. He's noteworthy because he was, um, well, El Cripo Maximo. He, he was the worst king Judah ever had seen. In fact, the Bible says that he was worse than any other king before him and any other king that came after him. That's how bad he was. And so Manasseh, the most wicked, vile king Judah ever saw, he died. Eventually, his grandson, Josiah, took over and reigned as king. He was a good guy. He undid all that Manasseh had done in bringing idols into the land, graven images, worshiping other gods, the breaking of those two commandments. However, in throwing out the idols and in bringing spiritual reform to the nation, he only succeeded in removing the idols from the heartland, he couldn't remove them from the hearts of the people. So it wasn't true revival. It was simply an outward reformation. Now, I know every evangelical and Protestant looks back to the great reformation by Martin Luther, and I think it was good in part, but I don't think it was complete because we don't need a reformation. We need a transformation. And there was a reformation in the land of Judah. They pushed away the idols. They went back to the temple. But they thought that by going to the temple and just showing up for temple worship, that's all that God required is my sitting in the temple and doing this ritual. And so the idols had been removed from the heartland, but not from the hearts. They still, their hearts were not turned in devotion to the Lord God. So with that as the background, we jump into chapter 11 and we'll understand the wording that we get in the text. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. You may recall that when Jeremiah was about five years into his ministry, a priest by the name of Hilkiah found a copy of the book of the law in the temple. And he brought it to King Josiah and he said, Look what I found. It had been neglected for so long. The scriptures, the word of God, the covenant. Principally, the book of Deuteronomy is what it is referring to. It is the uh, recap of the law of Moses. 
And uh, it was read in the hearing of King Josiah. When he heard it, he tore his clothes and he lamented because he knew that he and his forefathers had not kept the Scriptures. He made a promise. He made an oath. We're going to do what the Bible says. And then there's a great passage of Scripture back in 2 Kings chapter 23. It says, And the people stood... Oh, excuse me, 21. And the people stood to the covenant. That is... They saw what Josiah had done in pledging to keep the word of God. They stood to the covenant and they said, basically, we'll do it too. We'll keep it as well. We're with you, man. We're on your side. We'll keep the words of the covenant as well. Again, it was a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. It was a veneer of ritualistic religion but their hearts weren't completely turned toward the Lord. So, what God says here is, Jeremiah, I want you to review the terms of the deal. Review the contract. Review review the covenant. And in reviewing the covenant, no doubt, what he's referring to here is Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't have to turn there, but either keep a mental note if you're that good, or write it down and review it on your own. Deuteronomy 28 and 29. In those chapters, God tells them, If you as my people, whom I have delivered from Egypt, listen to my voice and keep all of the words of this covenant, I'm going to bless you in the land that I take you to. However, if you listen to my words, but you don't do them, curses will come upon you. Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. Blessings with your land, blessings with your family, blessings with your cattle, blessings with all the things you plant in the ground. If you disobey, all of those areas will be cursed. So, review the contract, Jeremiah. Go over the covenant and show them where they have gone wrong. And say, thus says the Lord God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the first part of the chapter. Deliverance, that word that I mentioned to you. From the iron furnace saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you, so that you shall be my people and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And then I answered and I said, so be it, Lord. You notice a phrase that describes the land of Israel in that little section. What is it? The land flowing with milk and honey. It's an oft-used phrase in the Old Testament. It's used about 20 times to describe the land of Israel. And if you're going on our tour to Israel and you look around, you're going to wonder, why is it called the land flowing with milk and honey? There's not literal rivers of milk and rivers of honey. Why is it called that? It's simply a metaphor for great pasture land, productive land. That is, it's a place where your livestock can feed and the cattle will be there, so they're going to produce milk. Sheep and goats, they'll produce milk. Um, 
bees will be able to pollinate because of the productivity of the land and honey will be produced, though most people think the honey it refers to is the honey that comes from the dates when they're squeezed, date honey. So in, in other words, it's a land that because of its situation that takes in rain from heaven, it will yield high productivity, a land flowing with milk and honey. To me, this is interesting, and I just was reading through it, and something caught my attention. God said, I'm bringing you into a land that will be able to produce a lot for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. But it doesn't mean I'm going to prepackage the milk and the honey and shrink wrap the milk and the honey and put a little label, milk and honey, free, and put it on tables as you get into the land. No, you'll go into the land, it will yield produce, but you still have to work the land. I'm going to give you the ability and bless you with the ability to be very productive, but it's not automatic. You've got to set your hand and cooperate with my blessing. Why do I say that? Well, because in like manner, Jesus our Lord said, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Just trust Him. For behold, the birds of the air. They don't reap, they don't sow, they don't gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Okay. So Jesus said, behold the birds. He used birds as an example of how God provides for us. Look at the birds. They're not worried. Have you ever, ever remember seeing a worried bird? Can you ever think of looking at your window, seeing a little bird sweating in his little nest with his beak and his claws, scratching his furry little head, saying, how am I going to get money for the, for the rent on the nest, honey? Not at all. They sing. They're happy. They're joyous. They don't worry. At the same time, in using the example of birds, it doesn't mean that all birds have to do is point their beak heavenward and open it up and expect worms to fall in. They are out. In fact, we have a saying, the early bird catches the worm. They're out early, working diligently, cooperating with the Creator who gave them the ability to be productive. They don't worry about it. So, God blesses our life by giving us the ability to cooperate with His productivity that is around us and we trust Him, and we believe in Him, and we don't worry about it, but we do go out and look for jobs and work diligently and work hard and cooperate with His blessing. Now, God told him to say that, and did you notice at the end of verse 5, then I, this is Jeremiah speaking, then I answered and said, so be it, Lord. In Hebrew, Amen. Literally, amen. Amen is the Hebrew word for right on, or so be it, or let it be. Not like the song, let it be, just let it be. Amen. So God said, Jeremiah, I'm giving you a difficult task. It's not going to be easy. You have to give a very difficult message to a group of people who really aren't interested. Okay, I'll do it. You know, Lori said something very important in this little interview we had. Obeying God isn't always 
easy. It's the best. It's right. But it's not the easiest thing to do. Jeremiah, I'm giving you a tough task. Okay, I'll do it. How different is Jeremiah's response to what God tells him than Peter's response to what God tells him? Oh, let's not even get into the New Testament. Jonah's response to what God tells him. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No! Goes the opposite direction. We get to the New Testament. God said to Peter, Peter, when he saw that vision on the roof down in Joppa, and God said, get up, kill, and eat these things that you see, these unkosher animals. You know the story. And he said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I've always laughed at that. How can you say, not so, Lord? That's a perfect contradiction. That's an oxymoron. Sort of like airplane food. You know, it's just like... It, it, anyway, forget it. Not so, Lord. You, you can say, not so, buddy. Not so, man. But if he's the Lord, you can't say, not so. If he's the Lord, you say, yes, sir. Like Corey Ten Boom used to say, don't bother giving God instructions. Just report for duty. That's what Jeremiah did. Yes, sir. You, you're giving me a difficult task. Okay, I'll do it. Your boss. He had the right idea. That's why, here's the covenant, blessings and cursings. Israel was cursed. Jeremiah will be blessed in the midst of the cursed generation. God said he'll take care of them. We see that through the book, and we see it through his life. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. So Jeremiah had a tough job. He not only had to give this message in Jerusalem, but all the cities of Judah. So can you picture this guy? He's like a circuit preacher. He's an itinerant preacher. He's going from town to town, village to village, proclaiming the word of the Lord that nobody really was interested in hearing. And what he told them was this. And notice these two words together. Verse 6, hear the words and what? Do them. Did you know that um, listening to truth won't do you much good in and of itself? We have become a nation of sermon connoisseurs because they're everywhere. Every day you can turn on a couple different Christian radio stations in just about every town and you can hear preaching, teaching. You can go to Christian bookstores and see and read truth. So we have become, in the Christian world, in our country, a, uh, a group of listeners. Certain ones we like, certain ones we think, ah, they're okay. Certain ones, yeah, nah. We, we sort of grade sermons. Hear and do. That's the key. You want life to really get good? Turn your hearing into doing. We know that listening to truth can transform our lives. It is the key. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. However, 
couple different ways to listen. You can listen passively. You can listen actively. Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Not just what you hear, but be careful. Take heed. Watch carefully how you listen to truth. Because you're accountable to everything you hear. That's why church can be, when it's done right, one of the most dangerous places you could ever be at. Because if you and I expose ourselves to truth and we hear, but we don't do, it's tough. Too much has been given, much shall be required. So here's the message, Judah. Here's the message, cities of Judah, Jerusalem. Hear the word of God and hear these words and then do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. What is he referring to? Prophets, spokespersons. See, Moses, uh, Joshua, there was Isaiah, there was prophet after prophet that came, rising early and bringing messages to these people year after year, time and time again saying, Obey my voice, yet they did not obey or incline their ear. Beautiful word picture of turning your ear. And you know when you have a conversation and the person sort of lowers his voice and you go, you are inclining your ear. In other words, I'm really interested in what you have to say. But everyone walked in the imagination of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. God is saying this. I've given you my revelation. You weren't interested in my revelation, but rather you turned to your imagination. And whenever a person goes from revelation to the realm of imagination, idolatry is born. That is exactly how idolatry starts, is when we leave the declared, revealed will and word of God, His revelation, and we start walking after what we think and imagine God is. Have you ever heard a person say, well, you know, I don't buy into that stuff you're telling me about Jesus. I picture God as my view of truth is what are they saying? I don't care about revelation, my imagination, my idea. You see, what they've done is shifted the authority from God to me. I'm the center of the universe. It's pure existentialism. I decide what I feel is right at the time. That's idolatry. That's the definition of it. That's what God nails them for. Year after year, time and time again, my heart went out saying, Obey, you said no. I revealed, you said, I don't care. I'm imagining what I want God to be. I'll follow my own dictates of my own heart. And idolatry was born. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. You know, I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes, well, I won't say that. There's a lot of times when I read the revealed will of God, the revelation of God in the Scripture. 
and it's uncomfortable. It's painful. I feel the Holy Spirit getting very personal with me as he points his finger at a certain area of my life and says, I want that changed. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable until we cooperate and see the changes come. So, here we are, week after week, Wednesday after Wednesday, Sunday after Sunday, maybe day by day as we listen to Christian radio and we hear truth, we hear truth, we hear truth. What is revealed must be taken in and we look at it plainly and then we deal with it objectively and obediently. And that's where, that's where the real joy comes. I heard about a, a wealthy a Chinese businessman who came to the United States of America years ago. He had never seen a microscope before. He was in a store and he was enamored, amazed that you could look at things like flowers and see these intricate, beautiful, colorful patterns and he had never seen it before, that microscopic world. So he bought one and brought it back home. So excited, wanted to show his family, his friends. And one night before dinner, he decided to show his family and his friends and look himself at the meal he was about to eat. So he took a little bit of the rice he had and he put it on a slide, put it under the microphone, uh, microphone microscope, turned the lights on, and he saw... The naked truth. All sorts of microorganisms crawling on top of the food he loved the most. The rice and the vegetables that he had as a staple every day. He was so shocked by what he saw, he knew he had to come to terms with it. You know what his solution was? Smash the microscope. <laughs> There's a lot of people that would rather smash the microscope... And go to imagination, then deal with revelation. What God is telling them in their hearts to do, to change. That's what Judah had done. God said, I, I revealed truth, you smashed the microscope. The lights were on bright, you smashed the microscope. And you've turned to the imagination of your own hearts. The Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What does he mean by that, a conspiracy? Well, you know, Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet running around. There were a whole bunch of others. We call them false prophets. They didn't in those days. They thought, these are prophets of comfort. Jeremiah is a prophet of doom. But this whole other genre of prophetic voices were saying, peace, peace. You won't go into captivity. God wouldn't judge you. God loves you too much. Evil won't happen to you. You're God's people. Jeremiah was saying, you're God's people and he's going to spank you. And then he'll bring you back. But it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the conspiracy was they had their own group of false prophets that they would rather listen to than Jeremiah. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers. Think of Manasseh now who refuse to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. 
Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offered incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. Let me sum those two verses up for you. God is saying that he wouldn't deliver them. And he is saying those false gods couldn't deliver them. You've been crying out to me, but I won't do it. They can't do it. I won't do it because you keep crying and crying, but you keep going back and perpetually not changing, not doing anything different. So judgment has to come, and you're going to call upon the false gods that you've been worshiping, and they're not really gods anyway. They're just little statues that you made. They're inept. They have no power. They can't deliver you. I tell you, there's an overarching theme, and I really want to zero in on it in chapter 31, but I am so glad I live under the new covenant and not the old covenant. I am so glad for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses a man and woman from all sin because I do fail, I do blow it, and all I need to do is confess it and turn from it. And God is merciful and gracious to forgive and cleanse a man from all sin. For according to the number of your cities, your gods were your gods, O Judah. According to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. Jerusalem as a city is densely populated. There's a scripture, and I can't remember it. It's Psalm 120-something that says... Jerusalem is a city compacted together. And if you stand on the wall of Jerusalem by, say, the Damascus Gate on the north side, and you're up on top of the walls and you look down into the city, it's so cramped together. And there are so many little streets and walkways and roadways that merge and divert. And so this is a powerful verse to me, that as many streets as you have... You have gods that you worshipped. Do you recall that when Paul the Apostle went through Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the gods that they worshipped. There were so many of them. It moved him. Well, this is God's city. This is God's town. This is Jerusalem. This is the holy city. It ought not to be so. But it provoked Jeremiah when he saw so many gods. The, the pantheon of the Babylonian and Chaldeans of Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech and others. In every place, in every corner. Therefore, God says to Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Now, I have never had the Lord tell me, at least that I know of, not to pray for somebody. In fact, He tells me to pray even for my enemies. (laughs) I remember a woman came up to me and she said, I don't love my husband as a friend. I don't love my husband. This was her ex-husband, excuse me. I don't love my ex-husband as a friend. I don't love my ex-husband as a husband. 
And yet I'm told to love people. How can I love them? But I, I, don't, have, I don't feel anything toward them. I said, then love them as an enemy. Jesus said, love even your enemies. If he's that rude to you, and if he's all that you say he is, and he's become your enemy, you still love him. He goes, she said, how do I love him? I said, I'll guarantee you something. If you lift up his name before the throne of God every single day in prayer, there's going to come a period of time where your heart will change. You cannot pray to the God you love over and over again for someone and continue to foster bitterness and hatred toward them. It can't work. You're going to start feeling sorry for the person. Love is going to well up and be the motivating force. So love him. Pray for him. But here God tells Jeremiah, and it's one of three times in this book God tells him, don't even pray for them. I'm not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. It's over. I'm going to judge them. That's a sad verse. That's a sad condition that a people would get to that extent where God says, it's over. They're reprobate. They're past help. There's an old poem that puts it this way. There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man twixt sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it has been crossed, even God in all his love hath sworn that all is lost. That's what God is telling Jeremiah. They're lost. Judgment's coming. The Babylonians are coming. Here come to judge, Jeremiah. Don't pray for him. What, verse 15, has my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh, that is the sacrificial offerings, has passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are broken. It's a picture of judgment. Green olive tree. Israel is the land of olive trees. You walk through Judea and you see terraced hillsides and thousands upon thousands of olive trees. Some have been there for almost a couple thousand years. The olive tree just doesn't die. It just keeps getting wider and wider and wider, sort of like us as we get older, uh, except they get hollow in the inside. And the olive tree, you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a word that means gatshmonim, means the olive press. And you'll see uh, olive trees that are about 2,000 years old. Olives were a sign of prosperity because olives were used for lighting lamps. They were used for refreshing the face and anointing with olive oil. It was the staple of the land. So the picture of a storm coming and lightning coming out of the sky and hitting a green olive tree and it consumes is the idea, is the picture of judgment. Because olive trees is a symbol of the nation of Israel. Even Paul in Romans 11 says that we Gentiles have been grafted in as a wild olive branch into the olive tree, which is Israel. So it's a picture of judgment that is coming upon the land God called you a green olive tree, but uh, its branches are broken. Fire is kindled upon it. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel 
and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Now, the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah prays. These are called the confessions of Jeremiah. There's several of them in the book. It's where the prophet, you, you get insight into his heart and into his feelings, what it's like to be rejected by people. Listen up. Now, the Lord gave me knowledge of it. You're wondering, well, what is it? Well, you'll see what it is in a moment. He gave me knowledge of it. And I know it. For you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. And let us cut him, that is Jeremiah, off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. There was a plot afoot to kill Jeremiah the prophet by the people of Judah and the men of his town, as you'll read as we close off this chapter, who didn't like his messages. They were too truthful. They were too real. They were too judgmental because God was going to judge. He was speaking the truth. They didn't want to hear it. So their solution, kill the voice so we don't hear it anymore. He keeps showing up in town. He keeps giving these messages. How do we get rid of them? We'll kill them. Usually, preachers don't face this. You know, maybe a nasty letter, maybe somebody will walk out in the middle of a sermon, that's about it, but a death threat, a plot to kill. Now, I've had uh, interesting, um, I've got my own examples and my own war stories, so to speak, of of interesting people that I've interfaced with. Uh, One of the most notable was the time when somebody came to our fellowship in Albuquerque with a gun, loaded, and walked into the foyer and brandished it and said, where's the preacher? Now, I don't know who the guy was. All I know is that I had a wonderful usher who was on top of things. He was there watching everything that was happening. This guy came in, and Jesse was his name. Jesse was this big, you know, brute. Jesse launched on the guy, took him to the ground, drug him out, called the police, and hallelujah for Jesse. But God reveals to Jeremiah before it's executed of this plot to destroy his life. He hears about it. So after they say this, verse 20, But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the minds and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Go back to verse 20. Since we're not going to make it through chapter 12 like I anticipated, believe me, I could keep going, but I'll spare you. For the mind cannot retain what the sea cannot endure. That's what I've always thought. Um, But back in verse 20, 
He's testing the mind and the heart. You see the word mind in Hebrew? And you might even have it in the center column of your Bible. It's literally kidneys. The Lord tests your kidneys. You might say, well, he's been testing mine for the last hour. I hope this is over soon because i got to hit the restroom. But that's not what it means. The word literally is kidneys. And then the next word, uh, heart, is literally mind. They've just got it reversed because... Uh, it's, it's, forget it, it's just a, a receptor language versus the host language. But the idea in ancient times is that you feel the deepest emotions in the abdomen, the viscera, the, uh, the kidneys, the um, bowels. In the New Testament, it's often translated. So that's the emotional part where you feel the deepest. Whereas the heart is the mind, that is, that's the center of your thought life and your will. God tests your emotions. God tests your will and your mind. And, and Jeremiah, that's in his prayer. Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, you know what I feel. You know what I think. You know that I've walked before you in integrity. You know that I've been honest and real and truthful and obedient. Let me see your vengeance on them, for you I have revealed my cause. Can I say something to you that might shock you? I think it's okay to pray that. Because, after all, God isn't going to answer every prayer you pray, right? I'm just going to say, that's okay to pray that because God can handle it. You know, sometimes we think, i got to word it just right and say it just right because I'm going to mess it up. How can you? <laughs> you know, just be honest with God. That's what He's doing, pouring out His kidneys, his emotions before the Lord, knowing God's big enough to handle it and God's going to let it happen or veto it. He's God. So I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to make him do something against his will. He's sovereign. So here's my point. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Tell him what you feel, what you really feel in your heart, knowing that it's safe with him. Charles Spurgeon used to say, there is nothing in my heart that I would not pour into the ears of a loving God. So he says, take vengeance on them. Hey, the Bible does say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So rather than you repaying, ask God to do it. I think he'll do a better job. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of, where? Where? Anathoth. Now, does that ring a bell? Where's Jeremiah from? Do you remember? Anathoth. That's his hometown. Really? Remember, Anathoth was a Levitical city. That's where priests hung out. He was a priestly kid. So, if I get this straight, there's this town called Anathoth, where the priests live, five miles northeast of Jerusalem, Jeremiah's hometown. The one town that of all the towns of Judah should have been most receptive to the truth, to righteousness. And when Jeremiah preached the word, they should have said, Amen, yes. But they're the ones that are plotting his demise. Hmm. Why do you suppose? If it's a priestly town, they should set the example. They should be in the forefront of obedience. And they're the ones wanting to kill the voice that's speaking for God. Why? Well, you remember a few chapters back, it was Jeremiah who st stood in chapter 7 
in the door of the temple as people were coming in, saying, don't trust in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You're trusting in the temple sacrifices and in the temple rituals, and it won't work. Who is working in the temple? All the guys from Anathoth. That's their job. They heard that message. They took offense to that because they administered those rituals that people trusted in. So what does God say? God says, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth even the year of their punishment. To whom much is given, much shall be required. That town, that priestly town, to whom had been given much, priests, officiators in the temple, the prophet Jeremiah, God required their obedience because they are the ones that perpetrated this scheme. God will hold them most accountable. And judgment, the Bible says, must begin where? At the house of God. That's a principle in the New Testament, right? Judgment will begin at the house of God. It's beginning in Anathoth at this place. Let me uh, close tonight by just saying um, Jeremiah's hometown, Anathoth, where his family lived, uh, it's, it's always hard to witness to your family. It's harder to witness to your family than anybody else. It's a lot easier to witness to people that you've never met before and you tell them about the gospel. But when they're your own family, it's difficult because they look at you like, we know you. Who are you trying to kid? Holier than us. There was a man hundreds of years ago named Simeon Stylites. Don't have to remember his name, but you, you'll like his story. Simeon was a recluse. These were the days when monastic living was huge, monasteries and uh, sequestering yourself away into uh, holes, caves, etc. out in the desert was deemed as holy. Simeon Stylites, they say, lived for 30 years on the pinnacle of holiness. There was a guy who was impressed. His name was Anatole. He was a Frenchman. And he looked at Simeon up there on that pillar and saw him as holy and prayerful and out in the wilderness and recluse. And so he decided, I'm going to do that. But he didn't have a pillar. No, he had a family. He had a home. He lived in a town. And so he thought he would improvise. And he, he took a kitchen chair and put it up on his dining table and put on a white garment and sat on the table. And he thought he was going to live his life in meditation. Then his family came home. And they ridiculed him and they scoffed him. And they thought, you are an idiot. And he wrote in his journal, I soon discovered it is impossible to be a saint while living at home with your family. <laughs> now I see, he said, why Simeon and Jerome went out to the desert. Yet that's where God calls us to be a saint, is at home with our family, not out away, but involved. And people may not understand it. But what is our response to be? Yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. 
We'll get into the next chapter next time we meet. Let me just say as we close in prayer, next week is a special uh, Christmas program that uh, we're going to have here at the church in music and worship, and the kids are going to play a part in it with uh, something they've been working up. So we're going to have another fun time next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for a glorious time in the Scriptures, the Word of the living God. And thank you that we are able to take a chapter or two at a time and and uncover a very um, strategic book that has a modern counterpart in our own culture, in our own country. As Jeremiah the prophet was surrounded by this people who had so much but did so little with it. We know that we live in a country that is very similar. You've blessed us so much with freedom. You've blessed us with founding fathers who declared in God we trust, and yet uh, our nation has a form of godliness. So, Lord, make us, like Jeremiah, those who will say, yes, amen, so be it, in the midst of the generation in which we live. For we ask it, and we believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.